Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Johnston River of Life. Oh boy, where to begin with Revelation, right? I had one person at, at Hopkins Grove this morning say, uh, I've been waiting for you to get to Revelation. This is going to be exciting. And um, I'm like, boy, just the pastor's dream. Let's get to Revelation. I'm really excited about that. Talk about some meat. You know, this is the last sermon in the sermon series called Interwoven. And I just want to remind you that this image, it's, it's a reflection of the Bible from Genesis all the way over there to Revelation over here. And these cross-references, the way that the Bible connects these interwoven themes, the story that God wants to tell us and help communicate in our lives, and how powerful they are. Now, Revelation, I'll have to admit, Revelation is not one of those that you get to too often in, in the pastor's life or in the church's life. In fact, I think often it gets avoided because of the challenge of preaching it, um, but as a kid, I should say as a kid, maybe in high school, um, I remember the excitement that I had around prophecy. I rem- Anybody else ever experienced that? It's like, oh yeah, it's just really excited ab- about prophecy. What's going to come and, and what can I know about all that good stuff? And, and I used to um, like read up on it. Um, in fact, there was a movie that I remember watching as a kid. I think this was a movie from like the 1960s. It was kind of a bad movie, but it was, it was a movie that um, it was all about prophecy and time revelation. At least at that point in time, that was the interpretation of things. And I remember they had all kinds of horrific, apocryphal kind of stuff happening. They even had the, the mark of the beast was a, you know, the UPC symbol that you check out at stores and marked on stamps. Everybody, anybody else watch that movie? Uh, <laughs> it was like one of those. I just, now I look back and I go roll my eyes a little bit and think, hmm, okay. But I do remember the joy that I had or the excitement that I had around prophecy as a kid because I was searching for answers. I was looking for what I could expect or what I could know about the future that was to come. And um, now I realize maybe I wasn't looking for the right thing. But in seminary, I, I can say that I did a little more studying and a little more reading, and I read a few more books and understood a few more authors and looked at some contextual history to understand things a little bit differently and maybe have a little hopeful insight and personal transformation that came out of books like Revelation. And I will clarify, I'm by no means an expert on end times or the book of Revelations, but If I were to do a series like this, talking about big themes that are woven together throughout Scripture, and if I were to leave out apocryphal type of writings, I'd be remiss as a pastor. These books are in there for a reason. Daniel and Revelation are integrated into the story of of God's love for us for a reason. And there's a significant amount of apocryphal kind of information. Now, let me first of all start by say, by asking, who knows what apocalypse really means? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, good. Then we're starting in the right place. Sometimes I wonder, how much am I supposed to back up or include in, in this? But apocalypse as a whole, I know that at least for me growing up, my theory of apocalypse was some kind of diastopian world where the end of all things was taking place. And and movies like Mad Max, anybody remember that? Uh-huh. Or um, Terminator, yes. The robots take over, right? 
or Matrix or even just some of the some of the movies nowadays where the world is being destroyed by flood, by asteroid, by ice age, right? We've seen all of these stories, these apocalyptic ideas, and I think it's kind of ingrained in humanity to think that way. But the word apocalypse in Greek, it actually means to uncover, to disclose, or to reveal something. In fact, guess where we get the word revelation from? Apocalypse, but it's, it's about revealing. It's about uncovering. It's about understanding something more deeply. When we understand something more deeply, it takes us to a new place in our own faith experience. So we have this passage in both Daniel and Revelation that quite honestly you read and you go, oh my goodness, what am I getting into? What kind of church did I step into? Where they're talking about the beast and all these evil images and what's happening. And then you've got the pastor who's standing up there preaching in his Halloween costume, right? I just thought it looked really good. It's, it's my new uh, Pentecost vest. Expect it to come back at Pentecost. You know, when we really understand what these images are about, though, it gives us a different understanding and a way that we can delve into our faith more effectively. So here we have these images, the lion, the bear, the leopard, this monster, this beast with iron teeth and ten horns, things that we can begin to maybe try and create parallels to or symbolism of and understand the metaphor behind. But let me give you some wisdom from others who have studied. This passage in Daniel begins before it starts about talking about, behold, the four winds that strove upon the great sea and created turmoil. And this author mentions that this understanding denotes the commotion in the world and the troublesome state of affairs out of which empires and kingdoms commonly take their rise. And then it begins to talk about the four great beasts that arise coming up out of the sea. And he comments that these signify the four great monarchies or kingdoms that should successfully arise and have their origins out of the commotion, the chaos of the world, generally setting up an oppressive kind of situation government and rule and subduing people. The language that we find in Daniel and in Revelation, it's apocryphal. It's literary. It's metaphorical. And it's addressing the powers of the world without naming them. Actually, the consensus around Daniel nowadays, even though it would have taken place 570-ish B.C., um, that the first six chapters are focused in on Daniel, and then, then he goes into this apocryphal writing of things that are yet to come, and yet the consensus nowadays is that, that likely it was composed later, 2nd century B.C., in the time frame that, that took Daniel, but then added to it talking about the things that had happened and the government or the powers that arose in the world addressing specifically the things that they were oppressing, the things that they were stealing away from religious practice, merging of, of cultural beliefs and religious practice through Hellenization at the time that it would have been finalized. It was that time frame that they were being forced to do away with sacrificial offerings. They were no longer allowed to practice um, in the temple circumcision and some of the very valuable practices of their 
religious process was being stripped from them. And basically, Daniel is addressing this by saying, hey, by not resisting, by giving over to the culture around you, you are giving in to the beast. Literally, the beast, contextually in both Daniel and Revelation, it's talking about those things of culture and government, the oppressive, divisive, abusive, militant aspects that oppress the people, that prevent the people from actually worshiping God. They're looking at how these empires that arise oppress, how they deceive people into adhering to something and actually elevating something in their life higher than God. Revelation continues the very use of this conversation around the beast or the dragon. In fact, uh, the commentator mentions Revelation, herein, he says, all of these features are combined of the beast because this wild beast is a representative of all forms of world power. World power which has been swift to shed blood like a leopard leaping on the prey, tenacious and relentless like a bear and devouring like a lion. Now, Revelation adds this additional image of a dragon. Everybody likes a dragon, right? If it's mythical, yes, and if it's... Okay, the dragon is added here, and of course, we know the, the spiritual language around a dragon. That this, is, this represents the evil one, or in some cases, it would be interpreted literally as Satan or the Antichrist, or essentially that one person or that force behind the scene that's manipulating the story the real villain, the one who's giving power to the beast, power and authority to be destructive. Another author says that Revelation 13, these two beasts are in service to the dragon, representing broadly political and economical arms of the world. The beast carries out the dragon's agenda in ways that simulates the Messiah deceptively and winning the ardor of many. You know, the truth is, apocalyptic books are part of Scripture for a reason. They're in here because they're intended to call out the evils of society of every generation, the dangers of devaluing God and actually elevating other things in our life devaluing our faith practices in order to elevate whether it's politics or whether it's economy, whether it's industry, whether it's military might, whether it's the culture of the world or whether it's just saying that this is going to be more important to me than God right now. Kind of the way that kind of the way that was happening in Daniel where the people stopped worshiping in order to surrender to society. Now, to be clear, to be clear, this is, this is not an anti-government message. This is not about supporting a party or a position or anything other than that. What Revelation and Daniel does for us, just like every other piece of Scripture, it reminds us that God comes first. It reminds us that our love of God and our love of each other, love of neighbor, comes above all of these other things because these other things can become the beast in our life that distracts us or that destroys us or that devours us that become more important than putting God first. It's also a reminder that God has the final victory. 
Because both in Daniel and in Revelation, we find out at the end of the story that you know what the good news is? After everything, God wins. In Daniel, it says, at that time, your people will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. In Revelation 19, it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb because they have been victorious. In fact, these passages warn the people of the day not to elevate or idolize or even align with the beast that is around them in the world of the day so that they would diminish their faith so that it would become oppressive or destructive to themselves or to others. It points us to the example of how Jesus engaged in his culture. Let's step back for just a moment because, again, this is not just one place in Scripture, but it's an ongoing narrative. And every time in that narrative, we can look to the life of Jesus and we can find how Jesus engaged with the culture, how Jesus actually Engaged with the beast of the day, if you will. Because think about it, Rome would have been represented by likely the, uh, the beast with the iron teeth. Look at Jesus, how he engaged with Rome, did he? One, one author says, yes, with nonviolent endurance. Jesus' focus was on doing what God sent him to do to love, to heal, to restore, to actually care for the people and for the community. Jesus didn't align with a political power one side or the other of the day. Jesus didn't even align with the temple. It wasn't about aligning or receiving power from any worldly position. Jesus' whole purpose was to love and serve and care for community Don't you think sometimes, when I, look, when I look at the stress, the tension of the world today, when I look at some of the political things that get elevated and the people that are fighting over stuff that I, I just I want to shake my head, I'm thinking, what does any of that have to do with how I love my neighbor? What does any of that have to do with how I, how I care for a friend? If I'm putting them first, if I'm caring for them then maybe I have a better understanding of who God has called me to be. See, this message, this message is all about the fact that God's already won. God has secured the victory. And even though we might get confused at times, even though we might sit next to someone who we have different political beliefs then. Maybe we don't agree politically on this or that or economically on this or that or environmentally on this or that or you name it on different issues. What we can agree on is that God loves me. God loves you. God invites me to participate in loving you as my neighbor. And God invites you to participate in loving every other person as your neighbor. When we truly understand the message of Scripture, even in these apocalyptic kind of passages, we begin to see that what God is revealing is that we can be distracted from our real purpose if we let these outside forces, whether government or politics or whether culture, we can let those things become distracting to what God is really calling us to do and to be. You know, it kind of reminds me of 
I'm going to stick with this theme concept. It kind of reminds me of the ongoing themes that God has, has written, that some of the other ones that we've already talked about. Because if you look at the Old Testament, one passage, in fact, I invite you to go home and Google this if you want. Actually, never mind. You can Google right here in church. I see people doing that all the time. I know that's what you're doing when you pull up your phone, right? You can Google this passage. It's God says, Jesus, okay, it is God in the Old Testament, says to the people of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. Over and over and over, in so many different places, God is calling to the people of Israel, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's God's intention. Look at what was happening. They all have kings. We want a king to rule over us too. And you remember what God said? No. I don't want you to have a king. I'm your, I'm your king. I'm your God. And you'll be my people. But they argued. They continued to want someone to rule over them. And so God relented and gave that to them. But, but the point is that God never intended that. God intended for humanity and God to be in direct relationship that we would be vassals and stewards of God's creation, that we would be direct in direct lineage, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, that we're lording it over one another ever, that we're not submitting to the powers of the beast or culture or those who have power around us, but instead we would be honoring God and worshiping the Lamb. Now the truth is, we can really look for deeper meaning in Revelation if we want. We can look and try and understand what the end is going to look like. At some point in my youth, I gave up on that. I said, I told myself, I realized, if I trust in God and if I seek God with all my heart, whatever is to come, I'm secure. But what I have learned about these kinds of passages is that I can continue to learn from them by looking at in my own life and asking myself the question, do I have a beast? Do I have something that detracts or, or tries to sideline me from actually seeking God with all that I am? Do I have something that one way or another culturally is drawing me away? And the truth is, I believe every one of us do whether it's placing work first or, you know, financial, you know, success above everything else, or whether it's, you know, now life is busy and the, and the kids and sports and everything on Sunday morning, I, I can't get to... So this goes back to Daniel, where what the people were doing is they were giving in to the culture and society around them, and they stopped practicing their faith. They stopped giving the attention to God that God requested of them. So ultimately, we have to ask ourselves whether that beast represents government or culture, or whether that beast represents economy or our own, whatever our own concept of that might be. What is it that is stealing our practice and our faith and our seeking God? What element of faith have we given up in order to put culture first? 
And how can we reclaim our priority of faith and our commitment to Christ? I invite you to pray over that today. How is God inviting you to renew your faith? Would you pray with me? Holy mighty God, we, we do admit that there are challenges that we face in this world, struggles that we are unsure how to address, and things that distract us from our relationship with you. And Lord God, today we pray that you would pour out your grace and your mercy upon us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may know the things that are getting in the way. Give us also the courage that we need to address those issues and to set them aside that we might grow in our faith and our relationship with you. And we pray this in your holy and mighty name. Amen.